0: Good morning. I hope you brought your Bibles with you. Are you ready? Are you sure? All right, here we go. Palm Sunday, thy triumphal entry. And of course, our text, as you well know, is John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. The attitude of the crowd we read about in this passage is not any different from us today. What I mean by that is this. When a new director, administrator, coach, pastor is brought on board, there is an expectation for things to improve or progress without delay. Expectations to see growth, development, advancement, so on and so forth. When expectations are not met, regardless of if they're realistic or not, many will get irritated, frustrated, upset, and discouraged. And along with that, many will begin to call out for the new leader to be replaced. See, Jesus did not deliver what the crowd expected, what they desired, and they quickly turn on him. They desire to see vengeance and retribution on, the, on their oppressors. They're interested in having their national pride restored. and Their understanding and their worship was shallow, superficial, and trivial. Let me just warn you with this statement. Believers who do not spend time to know God, and that can be done by study of Scripture, prayer, personal worship time, corporate worship time, if we do not take the time to do that, it will result in our understanding and discernment being poor, and that will cause our worship to be less than it ought to be. Because worship is supposed to be and can be meaningful and profound if we make time on a regular basis to spend that time in the presence of God. Not just here on Sunday morning, but every day of the week. If we do that, worship will become meaningful and profound. So we have to be intentional on discovering God's will and then respond to that in obedience. Look in verse 12. On the next day, the large crowd or multitude who had come to the feast. Let's stop right there for a moment. Most biblical scholars will tell you the population of Jerusalem at any given time was 50,000. Now this feast they're talking about is the Passover, one of the most important celebrations. During that time, as people would come back to Jerusalem, that population could increase from 100,000 on up to 200,000 people at the time of of this feast now what we have to take in mind is this when the crowd gets that large the social dynamic in population becomes immense there is a charged, emotional exciting political environment there and any city leader that was there knew any social disruption would lead to violence in other words right now if we had a hundred people walk in those doors There would be a little social stuff going on around here, right? Would you scoot over and let them in on the pew? Would you make them all walk up front, sit up front, because no one likes the comfy pews up front? Just saying. But look, when they had come to the feast, and he goes on to verse 12, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Did you come to church this morning with the anticipation that God was going to show up? to his people this morning and make himself known in such a way that when we walk out these doors, we will never be the same, not because of Tim's preaching, not because of the music, simply because God showed up. That's what you need to come with, that expectation. These people, when they heard that Jesus was coming, look in verse 13, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet them. Now, this is where it gets interesting, because palm branches played no significant or prescribed part in the celebration of the Passover. But they did play a part in the Feast of the Tabernacles. What they would do during this time, well, they would build these temporary shelters they would live in for a short period of time. It was an annual reminder how God provided for them when they wandered in the wilderness so many years ago. And the Feast of the Tabernacles commemorated both the past and the present. God's past goodness and his provision in the wilderness, but also his present goodness and provision at the completion of the harvest when this feast would take place. Now the palm branches was a national symbol that commemorated the time of the Maccabees, instrumental in overthrowing the Greco-Syrian rule of Israel. There was a procession celebrating the rededication of the temple, Around 164 BC, these dates are not hard and fast, depending on who you read, and the winning of full political independence in 141 BC. In other words, to put it some language we may understand better today, it's like taking the American flag, and as a president's uh, motorcade comes by, we, ra- we wave the American flag away, or we wave the American flag to celebrate Fourth of July, or stuff of that matter. So, what they're doing now. You guys, <laughs> everybody's looking at me like I'm quite sure what I'm going to say next. Think about this, though. Because look, look at verse 13. I'm going to read it like it should be read, so hold on. Hosanna! They're crying out with a loud voice, Hosanna! Blessed is he. Who comes in the name of the Lord and they're waving these palm trees? Can you get that picture in your mind? This is not just a small crowd. We're talking about a huge multitude of people taking these palm trees and shouting out, Hosanna! Hosanna! Now, they could be thinking of Psalm 118, particularly verse 26. Because that's a psalm of thanksgiving and the victory God had given to his people. But specifically, 118 verse 26, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. But the word Hosanna does not show up in that verse I just read, does it? The Hebrew word Hosanna means give salvation now or give victory now. That's what they're shouting at Jesus, waving those palm branches. If you think about it, you can probably figure out what they thought Jesus was going to do. They're probably chanting a paraphrase of verse 25 in Psalm 118. O Lord, do save, we beseech you, O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. You see, they're taking a psalm that doesn't really speak to it, but they're taking different symbols and they're placing on Jesus. I'm going to get a little ahead of myself. They see Jesus coming in as a national hero that's going to throw off Roman oppression and set the kingdom back up like it was under King David. That's what's going on here. Let's, let's keep going through the text. Blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Obviously, the crowd came out to meet a hero. They're shouting "They're Hosanna, save us now to Jesus. And proclaiming that blessing. blessing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And who was that? The king of Israel. Did you catch that? The king of Israel. I remember back in John chapter 6. What he did when they attempted to force him into becoming king. John chapter 6 verses 13 through 15. This is after he fed the 5,000. So they gathered them up, the ba- these baskets "...they passed around and collected uh, what was left over after he fed everybody, "...filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, "...this is truly the prophet who has come into the world." So Jesus, perceiving that they were tending to come and take him by force and make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone." They're calling him king here, and remember he had kind of withdrawn from that. Said, oh, no, no, no. Don't, don't do that. Now, although the designation king is clearly an appropriate title for, for Jesus, his kingship was not what the people had expected. He was not a political ruler, he was a surprising king who would die on the cross. The crowd might well proclaim him king, but they didn't understand what was truly meant by that. They're looking for a political figure. That wasn't Jesus. Yes, he's king, but not the king they had expected. And then verse 14, Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat or rode on it as is written. And we know in the other Gospels that he tells two of the disciples, go forward and find this, tell a person the Lord needs it. So here's this donkey and we can see the crowd attach themselves to the idea of triumph in Zechariah 9-9, because as it is written, Zechariah 9-9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humbled and mounted on a donkey." One obvious point we must look at this and find is that he did not enter Jerusalem on a chariot, pulled by horses, on a camel, on a big steed like Brother Roger said earlier. Those were used by the Roman conquerors. They'd ride in a great big old white horse in the Rome, ticker tape parade, if you will, everybody's celebrating, but this is not how Christ came into Jerusalem. See, Jesus undoubtedly understood there was another perspective in the text of Zechariah, a perspective that would not be welcomed by the crowd, and that perspective was humility. Get that, wrap your mind around it if you can. The great I am is now sitting on a donkey riding in to Jerusalem with one thing on his mind, the cross. For you. Let your mind simmer that thought. Now we know why the writer of Amazing Grace could pen those words Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Jesus, his reign establishes peace on earth and is inaugurated with a disarmament program. The choice of a donkey underlies this peaceful policy. If a war horse had been chosen, militant po- uh, policy would have been clearly indicated. He could have adopted this course of action if he wanted. However, what did he offer Jerusalem? Peace and patient submission. And they did not recognize what he was doing. And look what it says in verse 1, and "Is written, Fear not, Daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming. Now, I just read Zechariah 9.9. It doesn't say, fear not. What does it say? Rejoice greatly. But here, John changes it to fear not. Although the crowd didn't understand the implications of their cry for salvation, Jesus did, and he knew that salvation would be a traumatic experience. Just as Jerusalem had to learn that there was comfort in the midst of the exile when their lord god their shepherd promised to come to zion and encourage them not to fear isaiah chapter 40 verse 9 and following get up get yourself up on a high mountain o zion bearer of good news lift up your voice mightily o jerusalem bearer of good news lift it up do not fear say to the cities of judah Here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he will gather their lambs and carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead them, lead the nursing ewes. This is hardly the message the crowd wanted to hear. They're in for a shock. Not what they expected. You know, you realize the first thing, one of the first things he did, and he got chosen, right? He went to the temple. And all these pilgrims coming from all around, Jewish pilgrims would come in, and they would have to exchange their money into temple money so they could take care of things at Passover, get the proper sacrifice, so on and so forth. But the money changes were cheating people, made Jesus mad and upset. And he overturned the tables. Not a good way to influence and win people. And then a week later, you know what happens. The same people who were saying, Hosanna, save us now, are now yelling with the same tone, crucify him, crucify him. And verse 16 says that these things his disciples did not understand at first. John has let us know we didn't understand all this implication that was going on. And this can be best understood in light of Jesus' promise concerning the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. It's not just simply remembering the words that Jesus spoke. But the Holy Spirit will bring and will bring understanding. You don't have to have a seminary degree to understand the Word of God. As a believer, you have the Holy Spirit who will bring understanding to you, illuminate Scripture, lead you into righteousness, convict you of sin. That's the words of Scripture. John said, after the Holy Spirit was given, we will look back and we remember. Look what it says, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered, verse 16. This is not only confined to his resurrection, but it's one continuous movement, his birth, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and ascension. And then the Holy Spirit put all these things in mind. And when you read Scripture, you can almost see the light go off in your head. Aha! Now, I understand. Ever read Scripture like that? You're looking for it, all of a sudden the light's going, hey, I see it now. I understand it now. Look at Verse 17. Now, let me just set this up for a second. You already had a large multitude there. Now, in verse 17, people who were with them when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continue to testify him. So apparently, in that multitude, people were there when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Now they're talking about it. They're testifying to it. Some people who had witnessed that miraculous event. They continued to bear witness of what had happened. That Lazarus had indeed been brought back from the tomb, literally from the, among the dead ones. And so startling was this event for everyone that the authorities had moved immediately to hatch their Passover plot. John chapter 11, verses 47 and 48. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So even at that time, they're thinking, wait a second, we can't let this go on. The Romans will come in and destroy our position and take away our country. And because people were testifying about Lazarus, look at the rest of verse 18. For this reason also the people went out and met him. They gathered in response. So apparently there were some people not in the initial crowd, but started hearing about Lazarus from the Hey, that's the guy who raised Lazarus from the dead. They went out there and met him. Their interest peaked upon hearing this sign. I mean, think about this. Since Jesus summoned Lazarus back from the dead, he could deliver the holy city of Jerusalem from the yoke of Caesar. Surely he can do it. He can raise people from the dead. He can set... Our kingdom backed the way it should. And the crowd's acclaim raised the concern of the Pharisees. Look at verse, verse 19. <laughs> Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're not doing any good. They reckoned that this Jesus crowd that had gathered would ruin everything. The Romans would take care of, take care of it by restoring order forcibly. And their doomed prediction of Jesus growing popularly seemed to be on target. After all, they could only see their political helplessness. The NIV renders that, see, this is getting us nowhere. And that goes in their exasperation. look, the world has gone after him. The last phrase of our text this morning. Let's go back to that craft for a second that was testifying about Lazarus. Do you testify about what God's done in your life to bring people in? Let me tell you what God did. And some people say, well, Tim, he raised someone from the dead. That's big. You know the biggest miracle God does today, in my opinion? I'm raising Lazarus from the dead, I, yeah, that's good. Let me tell you something even better. Someone who's lost, wicked, cuss out God with every breath they take, enemy of God? Under his judgment and wrath, in one moment when they profess Christ, can now become a friend of God, family of God, saved, and nothing can take that salvation out of their hand. That is a true miracle when you see that life turned around. What the law, we pass law after law after law after law, and it won't change that person. Only the power of God can change the human heart, and you'll see the result. Now, we should have laws. Don't misunderstand me. But law does not change the heart. Only the gospel can do that. Didn't we learn anything from the Old Testament? The law is there, as Paul says, is our tutor. Tim, you've broken every commandment. You can't keep any of it. Drives me to the foot of the cross where I see I desperately need a Savior. And I come running. And this word world as they see it, they look, the world has gone after him, is not a negative term, as some may think. It's not, it's not a basically a geographical or territorial designation. It's a reference to the population of the world, that Jesus is the light of the world. Chapter 1, verse 9, chapter 8, verse 12 of John. His coming was to take away the sin of the world, John chapter 1, verse 29 But because of hard hearts and rejection, the coming of Jesus also meant the judgment of the world. Chapter 9, verse 39. In this present text, the the cry of the Pharisees was an exaggeration. Yet for some, it probably seemed that their control was collapsing. However, for John, it must have been somewhat ironic. Jesus had not come to be a political leader, but his interest is entrance into Jerusalem marked a strategic step in becoming the savior of the entire world what a story but as Roger prayed a minute ago it's Friday but hold on Sunday's coming and can I just make an application for that day is things bad right now you find life somewhat challenging and hard at a moment do you? I do Be downright difficult at times. Dearly beloved, this is Friday. He said He's coming again. And you can bank on that. One day it's all going to be gone. Going to be completely gone. And if you're a believer in Christ, you'll be with Him in heaven with all of us. And there'll be no more sin at all; be completely eradicated, and we'll sing praises to God day in and day out. We'll get to all eternity, getting to our God. See all those who passed on before. What a great reunion that will be! But I tell you, the greatest thing to look at my Savior and see the nail scarred hands and His feet, and think, "You gave all this up to come die in my place." I'm not worthy. And I'll fall down with the rest of them. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. See, the crowd assumed that day that Jesus and his movement would serve their cause. Their vision for society. And their vision for Jesus' being there. Together, these two things would make the necessary changes. That includes religious, political, and social changes they wanted to see done. However, Jesus does not satisfy their vision for society, and the result is crying out for his crucifixion just one week later. Now here's where the rubber hits the road. In what way do you and I likewise use Jesus to fit our own agendas, our own plans, to fit our own visions for social and political change? By attaching the name of Jesus to our own agenda, plan, and program. You and I must guard ourselves against that temptation. Many understand biblical to be nothing more than a political platform. And to question them is to jeopardize one's theological orthodoxy. That's not what Jesus is about. He desires, he demands, and quite frankly, he deserves all our praise. Adoration. And celebration. Too often, we see him through the issues of the day, issues in which we are confident and assume that he will stand with us and for us. Praying for God to do this or that. Luke nine twenty three. You know this. Jesus speaking. If anyone wishes to come after me. You want to follow Jesus? You want to follow him? Make him Lord of your life? Listen to what he says. His word's not mine. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's self-denial. Doing what he wants. And it is radically different from the all about me that we see in our society and culture and dare I say even the American church. I echo the words of John himself in his gospel. John chapter 3, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. If we want to see true change, we have to begin with that his agenda, his plans, not ours. And I know what you're thinking because it's a trap. It's a temptation to think, well, if I had been there and saw all the miracles that he did, I would have understood what he was doing. No, you wouldn't have. I've been this with the rest of them. Thinking he's coming. Jesus is not coming back to take sides with America. He is not coming back to take sides with white America, black America, whoever side you want to pick. He is coming to take over. Period. End of sentence. And on that day, only one thing is going to matter. Oh, please hear me. Only one thing is going to matter your relationship to him and to his father. That's the only thing that's going to make a difference. And I'm not talking about just coming to church and doing good things. Those are important. But Jesus said, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we do all these things? Pass out demons. And Jesus doesn't deny them that they did them, did them successfully, and did them in his name. He denies the fact they ever knew him in the first place. Using his name for nothing more than a tagline. Do you know him? Truly know Him, have an intimate relationship with Him. If you do, how's your relationship going? Jesus is not asking us to do anything He has not done, He's humbled Himself, humility on display for the entire world to see. And here's another thing. He loves you. You hear me? I'm not talking about how the world loves. I'm telling you, he loves you. In spite of what he knows about you, he still loves you and me even the same. Is there anything keeping you between you and the relationship you have with him? Do you know him? Have you given your life to him? You can do that right here and right now. Do you need to rededicate your life? We call it rededication. Really, you're getting lined back in the guys of God. I've done it all myself for so long, it's so messed up. I give up. I'm denying myself and I want to follow you. Perhaps he's leading you here to join this local body of believers. Can I just warn you? (laughs) It's not a perfect church. If it was the minute they call me as pastor, also well, that goes out the window. We're not perfect. But I don't know a more caring, loving, forgiving, supportive group of people than right here. I've seen it for the last five plus years. I see how you guys rally around. We have a job to do as to tell people be like that crowd that witness Lazarus. Let me tell you what God has done. I want to say something. To... Teresa's with us this morning, right over there. What's gone down in her life? Do you know what this whole story? The illness she had? There's Miss Beth. This had knee surgery. She was with us today. Story after story after story after story. How God has proven his faithfulness. You respond as the Lord leads you to. And we'll be quick to give him all the credit and honor because he is worthy of it all. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we've had. I thank you for these precious people that are here. People that are listening. The sound of my voice. Dear God, I pray that you reach down and you wrap your arms of love and peace around each individual and that you pull them close to your side. Father, we ask you to search our minds and search our hearts. See if there is any wicked thing in us that we may confess and repent and turn back to you. May we make the best use of this time now. Lord, we love you. We adore you, your creator, sustainer, redeemer, the almighty, everlasting, holy God. And we praise your name this morning with one word, Hosanna. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me, please?